sermon this morning is satisfaction not guaranteed. Now, that's a play on words, obviously, as many of you know, because in the society in which we live, we have everything is satisfaction guaranteed. Whether it's some kind of product we buy or a service or so forth, people want to make sure that you are satisfied with what they do. So I started to ask myself, why in the world would somebody have to say satisfaction guaranteed? Does that hold them to a higher accountability to satisfy the customer? Does that say that we're not sure that we can always provide the service that we've said, but we're going to guarantee that if you're not satisfied, we'll come back and redo it? I know in my business I've done that several times. And, and people, well, do you guarantee your work? Well, obviously. You know, guarantee is arbitrary. Because some people's guarantee, you know, understanding or perspective is way up here and others are way down here. So somewhere in there you have to try to reach a balance so that you do satisfy your customer. But in a personal way, when you look at your life and you ask yourself, what do I gain satisfaction from? You can sit here and probably name off many different things. For example, in my life, I love to cook. I also enjoy to eat. So it goes hand in hand that I get satisfied both cooking and eating. Some of you, it might be that, you know, we, we are satisfied to work in the garden, you know, to plant things and water them and watch them grow. And that just brings me really great satisfaction when I go out there and I open the window and boom, there's all these flowers blooming. Some of you are satisfied by taking a long trip somewhere, going to somewhere quiet. Maybe it's a beach and you find a lot of satisfaction just sitting in the sand and just kind of contemplating life and looking out into the ocean. There's many things that we can look at our lives that bring us satisfaction. So I did a little search and I popped in satisfaction on Google and came up with a couple of definitions that are kind of interesting and kind of fit with today's message. It says, The act of satisfying or the state of being satisfied, gratification of desire, contentment in possession, the act of fulfilling a desire or need or appetite. As we look into our message this morning, we're going to see that those things fit extremely well with what we're going to look at. Do you find satisfaction in your job? You find satisfaction in your relationships at home, whether you're married or not, whether you have children or not? Are you satisfied with the house that you have, the car that you drive, the money that you do or don't have? What brings you satisfaction? Well, first of all, we have to look at a bigger question, and that is, have you ever asked or heard anybody ask you the question, what is the purpose of life? Sometimes we ask ourselves, what's the purpose of my life? What am I doing? Where am I going? Several years ago, a scientist at John Hopkins University surveyed nearly 8,000 college students at 48 universities and asked what they considered to be very important to them. Now, you have to remember, these are universities. These are places where higher education is taught, where you think the cream of the crop is going to come from in our next generation. 
And here's what these students had to say. Some of these said, make a lot of money. Some said, get married and have a family. Some said, get a good job that pays well. But you know, the amazing thing was, is that out of those 8,000 polled students, 75% or 6,000 of them said that their first goal was finding purpose and meaning in their life. What's going on in our universities? Aren't we giving them purpose and meaning in life? Obviously not. What if you had the wealth of Bill Gates or Donald Trump? How about the intelligence of Albert Einstein or Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell? Would that satisfy you? I looked up this a couple weeks ago Forbes top 10 billionaires of the world. Staggering. Ten people have an accumulative value or worth of $425 billion. I don't think any of us here in this room understand what a billion dollars is, or even a million dollars. Some of us, not even a thousand. But that's more worth than some countries that exist in our planet today. So I thought about this. I said, what if I had a billion dollars? So I got out my calculator and wrote out my list and everything. I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I have a billion dollars. What can I get? Let's see. Oh, I can buy a thousand million dollar homes in Redwood City. That's a lot of real estate. If I don't want real estate, I can buy 500 Rolls Royces for a billion dollars. I can buy 10 140 foot super yachts, kind of like the one that Tiger Wood has sitting out in his wherever he is. Have you ever seen it? It's gorgeous. I could take 50 trips to the moon. I could buy a 100,000 Rolex watches. However, if you spent $10,000 a day, it would take you approximately 274 years to spend $1 billion. Isn't that crazy? Some of you who are mathematicians, I know, I can see your brains working going, is that true? And they're calculating. <laughs> Some find satisfaction in gamble. How many of you remember the early show, the $64,000 question? Remember that? People would get asked questions and so forth. There was a movie made about it and so on. I found this interesting. Remember the $10,000 pyramid? Then it was raised to the $20,000 pyramid. Then 25, then 100, and finally now it's a million dollar pyramid. Talk about inflation. Man. How about deal or no deal for a million dollars? Or who wants to be a millionaire? Or million dollar password? We are inundated with these kinds of things to help us be satisfied. And although monetary things bring us some satisfaction, if it was taken all away, what would you be left with? Those of you who put everything in that basket. There have only been a few people in existence that have possessed that type of wealth, that have possessed that type of intelligence, and have possessed that type of greatness. And that's the subject of this morning's message. The third king, Solomon, was such a man. In the book of Ecclesiastes, you have a Consider response to a basic question from one of the wisest 
richest and most powerful men that have ever walked the earth. And yet, even today, his counsel is widely ignored or misunderstood. Ecclesiastes is the kind of book a person would write near the end of his life, reflecting back on his experiences and the painful lessons that he's learned. Solomon is credited with three books in our Bible that we have today. He wrote the book of Proverbs from the viewpoint of a wise teacher. The Song of Songs from the viewpoint of a royal lover. But when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he called himself the preacher. Or as some have defined it, the searcher. Among other writings, Solomon saw injustice to the poor, crooked politics, incompetent leaders, guilty people allowed to commit more crime, materialism, and a desire for the good old days. Sounds like the days we live in today. Solomon has put the keys, or the key to Ecclesiastes, right at the front door. What does he say? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What's amazing is as Solomon continued to grow in his wealth and understanding and prosperity, he grew more depressed that life had no meaning. But it wasn't all like that in the beginning. We look at Solomon and he opens up in the first chapter and he has these observations. First of all, nothing really changes. Nothing seems to satisfy. And nothing is really new. And after experimenting and investigating life under the sun, he initially concluded no life is worth living. What a sad statement at the end of his life. Where are you in that experience of life? Let's set the foundation a little bit. First of all, the title, Ecclesiastes. It stems from the title given in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, meaning Ecclesiastes, meaning preacher. And is derived from the word ecclesia, meaning the assembly or the church. So Solomon is addressing addressing the people. A closer definition, however, could render the searcher, as we see Solomon will search. Secondly, what's the purpose? Is life worth living? Can I possibly find peace and purpose in this life? Solomon attempts to answer these questions by proving that true and lasting satisfaction in life can only be found by looking beyond this world. Ecclesiastes gives us an analysis of negative themes, but also develops the positive theme of overcoming the vanities of life by knowing, respecting, honoring, and fearing God. Thirdly, the theme, the fear of God leads to a meaningful and satisfying life. Fourth, as I said before, the audience, Solomon is appealing to all men everywhere. There are several key words and phrases in this, in this book. Vanity is, in its various terms, is repeated over 38 times. Under the sun is 29 times. Wisdom or wise is 52 times. Man, 47 times, and so on. To give you a background and an understanding of what this man is struggling with. But at the end, Solomon will explore, he will explain, he will experience and express that satisfaction is not guaranteed and is only temporary at best 
when found in this life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You, Father, that You have given us this book. That, Father, is a, a place where we can go and really seek out and search. Maybe there's things in our lives right now that we're seeking that we're trying to satisfy some need. I pray, Father, that as we go through this this morning, that ultimately we would be satisfied with our relationship with You and You only. So, Lord, bless this time as we look into Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you have your outlines in front of you, we're going to take a, a trip back and see how it all started. If you would turn with me to 1 Kings, and we'll go back to 1 Kings and we'll see how this all got started. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, it says, hold on, I still hear pages, I'll wait. Been a while since you've been to First Kings, hasn't it? All right. And Solomon said, and this, now he's talking with God, okay, or to God. He says, you have shown me great mercy to your servant, David, my father. Because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. Those are three key important characteristics. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now I left out an important part, and that's verse 5. Let's turn, go back to verse 5. It said, A Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God, asked, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Wow. Would that be something if God says, Ask, what shall I give you? What would you ask for? What would you ask for? David taught Solomon some valuable lessons about who God is. He could have asked for whatever he wanted. But the biggest thing that was on his heart was how to rule the people that God entrusted to him. Parents, are you listening? You have children in your household? Ask God how to deal with your children. Husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, whatever. Solomon says, give me the wisdom to be able to govern these people. Amazing thing when we look at that verse and it says, God said, ask what shall I give you? Well, let's move over to Second Chronicles chapter 1. Second Chronicles chapter 1. 
I'm going to start in verse 9. It says, Now, O Lord, let your promise to David my father be established, for you have made me king over people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before the people, for who can judge this great people of yours? And then God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have asked for a long life, but have asked only for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. Whoa. Could you imagine God telling you, not only am I going to give you what you asked for, but I'm also going to give you riches and wealth and honor and fame and all these things. Now, this is God speaking to Solomon. I mean, you could take that to the bank. You can take that to the bank. Now, you have to remember that in the beginning, Solomon was a faithful man, a righteous man, following God's ordinances and so forth as he was instructed. But as we look through and read through Kings and so forth, you see that he got sidetracked. Solomon got sidetracked. And what we have in the book of Ecclesiastes is we have a looking back on my life sort of thing, saying, okay, I've been there and done that. What have I learned? So many times we're in a conversation with somebody and say, oh yeah, I've been there, done that. How many of us go, well, I haven't been there and done that. I want to experience it. How many people would like the bungee cord or bungee jump? Nobody in this room? Maybe one or two? I think I might like to do that. Not to say that I've been there and done that, but it just looks like something that, I don't know, it just, it's, or skydive. I'd love to skydive. I think that'd be kind of fun. But in Solomon's life, as we look in the first chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, we see that Solomon comes to some conclusions real early. First of all, in chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, he says, Nothing seems to change. As he's looking at vanity of vanity, he says the preacher, Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all this labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, another generation comes, but the earth continues. Secondly, in verse 8, he says, Nothing seems to satisfy. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Thirdly, in verses 9 through 11, he says, Nothing is new under the sun. What he's saying is the futility of the cycles of life. He is observing those things. It's interesting to know that as the cycle of rain comes, it picks up moisture, dumps it, it flows back into the ocean, picks up moisture, dumps it, flows back into the ocean. It's a cyclical thing. It continues. And so he observed those things and said, you know what? Nothing's the same. or Nothing seems to change. Nothing seems to satisfy. And there's nothing new under the sun. Secondly, if we go down, verses 12 through 15, it says, now he finds the futility in human wisdom. He's recognizing, and that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time, is 
As he seeks and searches for wisdom and pleasure and accomplishments, possessions and works in each one of those areas of life. And he explores them to detail. He comes back with the same thing he started out with. It's all nothing. I don't know if you ever did this as a kid, but I remember and I got talked into this and it really works. I don't want you to go out and try it, but it does. That if you catch a bee in your hand and hold your breath, it will not sting you. Have you anybody heard that? Only my neighborhood? Wow. I really was a sap, wasn't I? God. But you know what was weird is it really worked. I mean, at first I was a little hesitant, so I'd pick up the bee and kind of let it go. And these, my friends are picking up and they're shaking it. As long as they hold their breath, it won't sting. So I figured, okay, well, you know, I'm a big man on campus. I don't want to be shown up, so what the heck? I grabbed the bee and boom. And believe it or not, I held my breath and it didn't sting me. However, when I started to shake it, I think the bee got a little upset. Man, it, it got me good. From that time on, I didn't put any bee in my hand with breath or without breath. It didn't matter. But one thing I noticed is when I grabbed for the bee, the only thing when I opened my hand up was the bee. Solomon says, what's in your hand? What do you think's in my hand if I go like this? What's there? Air. Nothing. And Solomon is making a point to say, you're grasping at nothing. Now I'm talking about from a human perspective. If we rely on our humanity for our satisfaction, it's like grabbing this. And when you open it at the end of the, your life, you go, wow, that wasn't very valuable at all, was it? It was nothing. Well, let's get there. First of all, Temporary satisfaction is not found in human accomplishments. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, we see it says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in German, or excuse me, in Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men, which means man's nature is always striving to, for wisdom for human wisdom, by which he may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. In this first section, Solomon states that even the best education is powerless against most of life's enigmas. He begins seeking wisdom externally, as it says, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I have set my mind to seek and to explore. And this word translated seek means to penetrate to the very core of an issue or a matter. And while the word explore means to investigate a subject on every side. So what I'm trying to express and explain to you is Solomon took into consideration every aspect as he is seeking all these things that we're going to talk about this morning. So when you, at the end, look at Solomon, you can be assured that there is no question that's unanswered. Even if you come up with one, probably Solomon already answered it. Because by seeking and exploring, he's looking at every single thing. You know, when you go to a store and you look at a diamond, the diamond, the jeweler looks at it, he just doesn't look at it from this point here. 
He takes that thing and he holds it up and he turns it and looks at the facets and he has a special little eyepiece that magnifies. He looks at every part of it because what? Because that's what makes the value of that diamond. The flawless part of those diamonds make it that much more valuable. So they investigate just as Solomon is investigating every aspect. The important thing is, is Solomon wants to give, you us, give us his credentials again. He starts out says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. He wants us to understand and remind us that this man who had everything still was not satisfied. You would figure that if anyone could find satisfaction at life, in life it would have been Solomon. But after citing his credentials, Solomon states that he purposely set out to find ultimate principles behind everything in the universe. We can assume here that he studied literature and art, psychology, sociology, astronomy, physics, and theology, philosophy, all the offies. Okay? But he found his search to be a grievous task, as it says. For there are so many things that yield no answers, even when assaulted by the highest of human intelligence. It's amazing that sometimes as we looked before in our survey of college students. I'm sure many of them had majors in many of these subjects. And the basic question comes down to, I want to try to find out what life means. In essence, they're saying all these things are not giving me the answer. Secondly, satisfaction cannot be found in human wisdom. In verses 16 through 18, and then again in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, Solomon transitions to seeking wisdom internally. He writes, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I realized that this also is striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. If Solomon were alive today, you might hear him say, um, you've heard of Socrates and Plato's and Aristotle. They're all morons compared to my wisdom. Solomon's point is that he at this time is the wisest man that has ever lived yet he could not find satisfaction in knowledge or education. At first glance, it's natural to assume that Solomon's quest led him to observe insanity somehow. However, in Scripture, both madness and folly imply moral perversity rather than a mental breakdown. And having felt that he had mastered intellectual pursuits, Solomon decides he will seek to understand the pursuit of pleasure as we look into our next point. It's a digression. Intellectualize. Then pretty soon it becomes internalized. Then all of a sudden it becomes physical or external. And so there's a progression. There's another part of progression. Remember? Sin's progression. Same thing. In verses... 12 through 14, chapter 2, it says, The wise men and the fool die alike. Solomon writes, So I turn to consider wisdom 
madness and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king, except that he has already done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I know that one fate befalls them both. doesn't matter how smart we are, how much wealth we have, how many things we possess. Our days are numbered. Each one of us, God has given certain days on this earth, and then that's it. So many times we've heard David Hawking say, you're going to die right on time. Because it's God's timing. The question becomes, what happens to you after that? We all have to face it. Solomon concedes that wisdom has certain advantages over ignorance. However, despite its advantages, even the remarkable gift of wisdom falls under the general condemnation of vanity. Not the wisdom that God gave him, but the wisdom he is seeking. The human wisdom. In verses 15 through 17, the wise man and the fool are both forgotten. Solomon writes that, I said to myself, as is the fate of a fool, it will also befall me. When then have I become or been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. The intellectual's real hope is that he will achieve lasting fame and be long remembered for his great contributions. Solomon pronounces all this to be an illusion. Future generations will no more, remember, no more remember the scholar than they will the beggar on the street. Notice carefully that Solomon does not say, I hate life, but I hated life. This is not his final conclusion, not even his present outlook, but it, it was his attitude when he pursued wisdom and turned up empty-handed. Well, let's take a little jaunt here about knowledge and wisdom. Consider the sum total of all our knowledge, all our progress, all our technology. Has any of it made the experience of life richer? Sure, in some cases. We're thankful for medical advances. I'm thankful this week, especially that uh, through Shelley's surgery, that they caught whatever it was before it became an issue. That's technology that I thank God for. Ten years ago, they didn't have that type of technology. But praise God they do today. How about jet travel? Instead of driving for hours and hours to get from here to there, you can get in a jet and be in Europe in several hours. Microwave ovens. Boy, that's a godsend, right? Come home, you got something to heat up, boom, pop it in. You don't have to do the oven and all that jazz. In one minute, two minutes, it's done. Freezers. Boy, we can load a lot of stuff in our freezers, can't we? How many of you have freezers, not in your refrigerator, but out in your garage? Most of us do. How long will it take you to empty that freezer out there? Never. You know why? Because you keep going to the store and filling it back up. It's always full. I remember my mom being, we were raised with five boys. I remember my mother, she had a, two freezers. One was a 20, I forget, 20-something cubic foot, another one. And I remember she would have one or two rows just for bread. Just for bread. There'd be like 20 loaves of bread in the freezer. Once a week, she'd go down to the, the day-old bakery, load up her boxes, bring it to the freezer, boom, put it in there. We always had bread. 
we always had other things too, and it was amazing how organized mom was to fit, and she knew everything that was in there. She never went to the store unless it was down to a certain amount, then she'd go. Unfortunately, I haven't learned that lesson. When I see a couple things, I go right to the store and load up again. Or I look for the sales. Oh, Safeway's having a sale on tri-tips. Man, I better get four or five. I don't have any room in my freezer. Well, get another freezer. That's all. Uh, Some of the great things in life. And someday, someday, one of those technologies will be right here in this building. Air conditioning. We've been looking at that for a lot of years. It's coming. It's coming. Most of us have more information on our hard drives, on the hard drives of our computers, than entire nations once had in their ancient libraries. Yet there have never been so many unhappy people, so many illiterate, so many hungry, so many diseased and disowned as we have today. All of our accumulative knowledge of history cannot keep us from terrorism and war and discord on every planet. We spend millions of dollars on AIDS awareness, yet people who know better regularly engage in promiscuous sex. We have more consultants and experts in business than ever before, yet bankruptcy continues to increase. We have learned about fat grams, carbs, calories, and exercise routines, yet we are the most obese nation of the world. Books on parenting and marriage, child rearing, relationship building appear regularly, yet families seem to struggle as never before. Divorce continues to increase and marriage continues to decrease and become redefined. We have been inundated with self-help seminars, New Age spiritualism, the One Consciousness Movement, and now to some, the religion of global warming. And yet, we live in a world of pain and suffering, wars, terrorism, and fear. We have advanced technically, but declined morally. We have advanced industrially, but declined intellectually. And we have advanced naturally, but declined spiritually. We have gotten more sophisticated, repackaged our morality, and left our logic at the door, allowing our multifaceted medias to to dictate what we should think And we have adopted their facts as truth. We have compromised, legitimized, and demoralized what was once considered life before it was born. And we have substituted our firm foundations for the shakiness of relative reality. To coin a new show, are we really smarter than a fifth grader? Some would say not so. Not much has changed in our pursuit to find meaning since Solomon's day. Again, that point of grabbing and opening, there's nothing there. It's impossible to know what God has in store unless you seek God. Socrates himself said once, I am the wisest of all Greeks because I of all men know that I know nothing. It's a pretty cool statement. T.S. Eliot once remarked, All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. It exposes what we didn't know. So do you see the constant progression of wanting to know? It just perpetuates our understanding that we don't know everything. Solomon's conclusion is the pursuit of knowledge is also not the answer to life.
So he digresses. Thirdly, satisfaction cannot be found in human pleasures. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to be going back and forth to Kings and Chronicles and Ecclesiastes and so forth. 1 Kings chapter 11. But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Just to give you an understanding, I can't even comprehend a thousand women in my household. I have enough trouble with one. And she's a jewel. But imagine that you have in within your grasp the amount of pleasure that this man had and yet couldn't be satisfied. We're told in our society today, what, are, what do our commercials and advertisements show? It's inundated with things for pleasure. Whether it be drinking, whether it be buying this kind of a car, going to this kind of vacation, whatever it is, we are inundated with things to please us or please our flesh, please our nature. But what does God say? He warned Solomon. Solomon, don't go there. Don't do that. I already know that if you do that, your heart is going to be turned away. And that's how we have the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon's heart was turned. Verses 1 through 3, we're going back here again to Ecclesiastes in chapter 2. He says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth or gladness. Therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of mirth or gladness, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under, under heaven all the days of their lives. Now he's giving us a pretty broad stroke of everything that he's going to experience Many of us escape from reality in so many different ways. Some drink, some use drugs, some watch TV for hours on end, some are on the internet for days. There's many things that humanity finds for pleasure. 
It's funny, one, one writer says, getting drunk for pleasure is about as dumb as jumping off a 10-story building to enjoy the breeze. That's <laughs> pretty cool. I like that. I really did. Fourthly, satisfaction cannot be found in human possessions. Chapter 2, continuing verses 4 through 11, Solomon writes, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate force of growing trees. Solomon tried to create his own Garden of Eden. His buildings, vineyards, and gardens, and irrigation, and canals are legendary even to this day as archaeologists look into those things. Solomon's temple is known to be one of the most magnificent buildings of all time. It took 153,000 workers seven years to build the temple. That's nothing compared to Solomon's own dwelling. It took 100,000 workers 13 years to build all of his household. Pretty amazing. If you want to turn back, it's, it's kind of a neat thing to look, and I did this. We look back at 1 Kings chapter 10. I know you're going to be going back and forth, but I really had fun with this to bring it into today's perspective. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 14 through 29. I should have had these all marked out. I did, but okay, 1 Kings 10. Okay. It says, Now the Lord raised up, or excuse me, wrong one, 14. <laughs> the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, from all the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three miners of gold went into each shield. And as we continue down, you see, gold was just like sand. So I did a little calculation, because I like to do those kind of weird things. And I looked and said, okay, 666 talents of gold equals what? Some of your... Commentaries say 25 tons of gold, right? What's 25 tons of gold? 50,000 pounds. Well, how many ounces is 50,000 pounds? 800,000 ounces. Now, if you had 800,000 ounces of gold at $800 an ounce, just from that alone, your income would be $640 million a year. That's Solomon's time. Today, it could be in the billions. But that's just from one resource that he had. In fact, it says as time went on, he considered silver as stones. I mean, that's a wealthy person. He possessed great pieces of land, houses. He called them pools, but they were quite large, two or three hundred feet in, in, in length and in, in width and in depth. Huge. And then it says, back in Ecclesiastes, it says, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. 
I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Could you imagine going to anywhere you wanted to and everything you saw, you bought? Everything you saw. What store would you choose first? Would you go to a jewelry store first? And then everything your eyes saw, you just said, just wrap it up. I want this whole store. Take it. What if you walked into a car dealership and every car that was put out there, you said, everything my eyes sees, I'll take home with me. What if you went on a vacation place and all of a sudden you saw these condominiums right on the ocean, beautiful places, and every place your eye looked, within that frame of vision, you could have. I don't even understand that. But yet, Solomon says, I lived it. I experienced it. So when Solomon says all that is like this, I have to take what he says pretty seriously. Because he's in a place I'll never be. And most of us here in this room probably will never be. In the classic movie, Citizen Kane, it illustrates this point. In the film, you watch this character, Charles Foster, played by Orson Welles, accrue an incredible amount of wealth until ultimately it destroys him. As Foster is progressively tainted by his desires for wealth, power, and pleasure, there is a recurring shot of a fireplace in his home. You remember that? Those of you who've seen Citizen Kane? As the wealth grows and becomes more destructive, the fireplace grows. It gets bigger and bigger until the last few frames of the film, it is the largest thing in the house. The fireplace is always burning and consuming, and by the end of the movie, the fireplace takes up most of the entire wall of this particular house. Foster's life is nothing but this raging inferno that never ever is consumed until he dies. And when he dies, all his possessions, all he had worked for, are burned. How many of you remember his final thoughts and word? Anybody? Rosebud. Remember that? He kept whispering Rosebud. And in his mind, he sees the sled of his childhood. And I started thinking, why is that so important? Because at that point of time, the innocence of his life didn't have any of these things that had tainted that once young idealistic, imaginative little boy who all he had was a sled to ride on the snow that was sufficient and satisfactory. And he looks back and that's all he remembers at the end of his life. Big statement. Big statement. I can't think of help or think here of, of what Jesus' question is. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And Solomon would answer, nothing profits him, nothing at all. Solomon's telling us it won't work. You can earn more, spend more, collect more, drink more, eat more, sin more, you name it. But none of those things will put meaning into your life. Brings us to our final. Satisfaction cannot be found in human works. Now, I may be stepping on some of your toes this morning. But in our society, you don't get anywhere until you work, unless you work at it. Some of you are working 12, 14, 18 hours a day, five, six days a week. Some of you say it's justified. 
I can speak from experience. That's where I was some years ago when I first started my business because it had to be. The problem is, is I got into that rut of working those hours that many days. It took a toll on my physical part, my life. It took a toll on my mental understanding. It took a toll on a relationship, my children, my wife, my church body. It took its toll. Until one day somebody said, you know what? You need to back away and reevaluate what, you, what you're doing. Oh, but I'm, I got my own business. I'm, I want to grow it. I grow it. What good is it going to do you, as Solomon said, when you're in the ground? What's more beneficial? As Solomon says in verses 18 through 20, you can't take it with you. I get a big kick out of seeing some of these people that have these elaborate funeral services and they're buried with their cars or motorcycles or all kinds of different items. It just fascinates me because I'm thinking to myself, somebody's got to be looking at that going, what a waste of a good motorcycle. What a waste of a great car. You know? If you're into things, or jewelry. I mean, they'll put jewelry all over people and bury them in the ground. And I'm thinking, you know, people are going to go, can't wait until about six months from now. I'm going to go buy me a backhoe and do some digging, some treasure hunting. You can't take it with you. No matter how hard you try, no, no matter how strong of a grasp you have on whatever it is, it's not going past this life. Solomon says, God tells us as well, you come to God like this. Everything that we possess in our lives, God has put in our hands to be good stewards. Say it right. I have a hard time with that word. God says, I'm giving you these things to be good stewards of my gifts to you. Now, when we start going like this, God is saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> Those are things I've given you. I've allowed you to have. What are you doing? And it's like that little kid, mine. It's mine. Those of you who've had little children or grandkids or whatever, you give them something, you go, here, give me that. No, mine. They don't want to give it to you. The possession of it. God says, leave your hands open. Here's the cool thing about it. God may take out something that you're not expecting and putting something else that's overwhelming. But if your hand is closed, He can't do either. And you're stuck with what you have. And at the end of your life, you're like Solomon says, it's all for nothing. We don't want to be people like that. One writer says it this way. It says, our culture is a cotton candy world, sugary and seductive, a pink swirl of empty calories. Today you might be the flavor of the month with Hollywood or Wall Street at your command. Tomorrow your pockets may be as empty as your soul. How many of you have ever seen that program? It talks about those who have won lotteries and what their life has become. I mean, there's, pro there's people who have won millions of dollars and have not one cent in the bank and are living in a home that is dilapidated and not even theirs anymore. My thought always is, let me try. Let me just have a little crack at it. I think I can do better than them. In fact, I know I can do better than they can. But if I really look at it, I go, you know what, I'll probably be in the same, same spot they, they will be. 
But it's amazing to me that even when you are given that kind of wealth, people squander it. Why? Because there's no meaning in their life. All these things they're using to gather meaning. If they had meaning in their life, they'd be good stewards of what God has given them, right? They'd be able to let God take out and put in whatever God wants. And no matter what it is, it would be satisfying. What we see in our world goes against everything that God expresses to us in His Word. As we conclude here and we look in verses 24 through 26 in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. It says, Nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. There's nothing wrong with being, you know, doing your labor and having some kind of reward and so forth. You know, Solomon's not saying that. He says, This also I saw was from God's hand. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. What's his conclusion? It says, Our satisfaction comes with a right relationship with God in Christ. Because in that you have eternal provisions. You have immeasurable grace, unquenchable love, undeniable faithfulness, and His immutable truth to stand on. Satisfaction is a gift from God just like salvation. When we can take our education, our pleasures, our wisdom, and our works as gifts from God, then our search has found its goal. And all the good things that God has in store for us are ours. Death cannot and will not take any of that satisfaction. Praise God. In Matthew 6.33, something that we've gone over last week, and we'll go over it again this morning in closing. Familiar verses that we need to cling to and understand. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. He didn't leave it there. And His righteousness. And all these things. What are these things? It's up to you to find those things. God already gave, him a li- gave us a list. His provision. And all those things will be added to you. This morning, ask yourself, what is satisfying my life? Where do I find satisfaction? Can I walk out of here this morning and say, you know what? There's some things I need to look at in my life that I thought were satisfying, but now I need to take a closer look. I need to explore. I need to seek those things to really evaluate if, in fact, they are truly satisfying. Not from the world's perspective or your understanding of it, but from God's perspective. Because ultimately, the only thing we can leave with this world is what God has given to us in salvation in Christ. Everything else will be left 
Don't be left with nothing but error in your hand. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You this morning for Your words. Lord, I just pray that the things that You've entrusted to each one of us, whatever they may be, could be a relationship. could be our house. could be our children. could be our jobs. Those are things from Your hand, Lord. We need to honor You with them. God, help us have open hands so that You can take out and put in the things that You want, not the things we want. Help us unclench our fists so that You can have Your way in each one of our lives. We thank You for Your Word this morning, Lord, that gives us that assurance that if we seek after You first, Lord, all these things will come in an abundance as Solomon once saw in his life that not only you gave him wisdom, but you gave him all other things as well. So Lord, we just thank you and give you the praise for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.